I don't know how many of you guys have heard of this show. It's no longer on TV anymore. It's called The Biggest Loser. Uh, <coughs> I like this show. I actually ended up maybe two years ago, and I really like this show when it was on TV uh, because I think it's really interesting to see people change. Uh, if you have no idea what this show is about, it's basically people who are obese and they will live in this house and go through this program for 30 weeks. And the whole point of the game show is that whoever loses the most percentage of weight wins. Uh, depending on the season, some seasons $250,000, some season less, some season more. Uh, but but the, 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 the amazing thing is, as you look at this picture, this is actually um, the person who had the whole, held the record of losing the most weight. Uh, her name is Ashley Johnston. She's 27 when she joined uh, The Biggest Loser that particular season. Her starting weight was 374 pounds. And by the end of the season, her weight was 191. 374 down to 191. If you want to do a quick math, that means she lost 184, uh, 183 pounds. That's a little bit less than 49%. So from the first day when she entered into Biggest Loser Camp to 30 weeks later, she lost almost half of her weight. And if you ever watch that show, it's really, really interesting because they are asked to do some really, really hard things. Most of the people who enroll in, these, in this show, they're not by any measure of imagination love doing exercise. Many of them, in fact, hate doing exercise so much that part of the lifestyle adopted become obese. And so as you watch the show, it's just crazy how week after week they will have this weigh-in and they will lose weight and some will gain weight and they have this constant battle of like doing the right thing, eating the right thing, doing the exercise that they prescribe. And sometimes you see them cry. Sometimes they're like really struggling to even get on the treadmill. They don't want to walk. And But obviously, Ashley Johnson did the work. She lost 49% of her weight. Like when's the last time you've lost that much weight? Right? And, and, and I, the question I always ask when I watch these shows, how do they do it? Like how do these people have enough discipline have enough juice in their body that they want to actually lose that much weight is not easy at all what keeps them on the treadmill when they're crying if you ever seen the episode any of the episode people always crying on that show because it is so hard i'm trying to lose five pounds in three months and i've yet to do so and i'm relatively active person and you're asking someone who have a lifestyle of eating a lot and gaining a lot of weight to do exactly opposite of what he or she normally does. Then the question is, how do these people do it? And as you watch this show, it's really interesting. Almost every episode, there is these montage and interviews of two things that, uh, that kind of help these people to, to remember to look forward to. There are two things. One of the things they do is this. They always look back to their life previously when they were really, really had a lot of weight. That when they struggled with their weight, they would look back, go show them the picture, show them, remind them what life was like when they were carrying that much weight. How they affect their self-esteem, how they affect their lives, how they affect their family relationship. And inevitably, they would look back at that and say, man, that is not the life that I wanted. That is not the life that I want right now. And I knew back then that was the, how damaging, how, how, how crippling that life was. And they would go back to kind of remind them and they would say, look, uh, interview their family. And then that's one of the things they do to motivate them. And here's the second thing that they will look forward to what life will be like if you lose some weight. 
if you lose a lot of weight. They help them to dream. They help them to look in the future and say, don't you want that type of life? Don't you want a life that is healthy? Don't you want a life without knee pain? Don't you want a life that, 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 that will allow you to spend time with your kids because you're healthier? And they will paint this amazing picture that they will look forward to. And in almost every season, you will see people, some people will buy into remembering more of their past or how they, they don't want that life. And also some of them will, will strive toward the life that, that, that they wanted to have, that dream life, that healthy life that they wanted to have. And I wonder for many of us who are Christians here today, sometimes it is so hard to walk that Christian walk every single day, isn't it? Like day in and day out, we know the Bible says walk in the truth. And we just read that verse from chapter 1, verse, verse 5. It says, uh, chapter 1, verse 5 says this, God is light and there's absolutely no darkness in him. And subsequently, the rest of the chapter talks about how as Christians, you as Christians need to walk in the light because Jesus is the light. God is the light. And tomorrow when we wake up, sometimes it's hard to walk in the light. Sometimes it's hard to obey God, to, do, to obey what he called us to do in scripture sometimes it's hard to love the person next to you at home or at school or at work but as i was looking at as i was looking at the text that we're going to read today from chapter two at end of chapter two to beginning of chapter three we see a similar thing that john the apostle is trying to uh, motivate his audience very much like what i described in the biggest loser because, because John is trying to encourage them to look back at the life that they once had and say, don't you remember how miserable that life was? Remember how far I took you away from that life? And now I have a better life for you to look forward to. And that's what John's going to tell us. That John's going to encourage, it's going to motivate us today and how to do so. So we're going to pick up uh, the passage from John chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 28. Just to remind you, the, uh, the, bo- the book of 1 John have two major parts. One part is about God is light, how we need to live in his light. The other part is love one another. So we're toward the end of that first session, uh, ver- uh, chapter 2, the end of that and beginning of chapter 3. This is the end, this is kind of summary session of how we should live in the light, how we should live moral, uh, righteous life. And verse 28, here's what John's, the, uh, the apostle John said to us right here in verse 28. So now, little children, remain in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. John ended this session with a command, with an exhortation to remain in Jesus. To remain in Jesus. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of the word remain. Many of us, we just kind of think of a very passive thing. Just kind of stay with Jesus. Like let Jesus do all the work. It's a very internal thing. When we think of remaining in Jesus, we think, oh, I need to do my quiet time. I need to pray. It's a very passive, uh, internal thing. But as we have tracked through so far in the book of 1 John up to this point, John have a completely different idea about what does it mean to remain. Because in chapter 1, verse 7, he said remaining is like walking in the light. It's external obedience action, doing the right thing. Chapter 2, verse 1, do not sin. Do nothing that is sinful. It is not just a thought. I don't want to think sinful things. But he goes so far as to say, don't do it. Chapter 2, verse 3, very explicit. Keep his commands. 
remaining in Jesus is not just a good thought, a good devotional thought, but remaining in Jesus requires you and I to live out a life that matches Jesus. Ver- chapter 2, verse 6, walk as Jesus walk. It is not just internally feeling like Jesus, but externally walking like Jesus. That's what John has the idea of remaining. That's the exhortation for you and I, command for you and I, as Christians, do that thing. Remain that. Remain in Jesus. Live like Jesus. Live righteously. Which brings me to the picture I showed you last week, which I want to really put it in your heart and your head, is this idea of salvation that oftentimes we make the mistake of thinking salvation. We have a wrong picture of what salvation is. Most of the time when we think of salvation is, salvation is just a dot of a decision. I raise my hand, pray to prayer, boom, I'm in the kingdom of God. As I explained last week, salvation, this is really important for you to get because if you get this picture of what the holistic picture of what salvation is, it will help you to continue to run this race to walk with Jesus. Because if salvation is not just a decision, which John continually teaches us, it is a moment of decision that begins a journey that there will be a future. It's a dot and an arrow. That you don't just make a decision to receive Jesus, which, uh, which salvation is not just a moment in time only, but it starts something but continues. So theologians, scholars will, will use these three big terms, but I want to give it to you, not because I want to impress you, but I, I want to give you a language to understand what salvation is. Because when we think of salvation, I'm working with some people who are getting baptized, and they're self, when they think of salvation, they're thinking what happened before. When, I, when someone call out and receives Jesus, that's what they think of, which is true. And in part is that salvation, part of salvation is you are being justified, justification that you have been saved, you were saved. So for me, that was when I was in, in eighth grade. I raised my hand to receive Jesus. Someone led me to pray uh, to how to receive Jesus, confess that I'm a sinner. That happened in the retreat site that many of you have been to. That was a long time ago. So we, I was saved at a time. But in order for us to understand why we need to keep walking with Jesus, because Jesus is not done when you just raise your hand and pray. He continues to save you, which is a process of sanctification. It is a process of making you more like Jesus. That not only were you saved at a moment in time in the past, you are continue being saved today as you draw closer to Jesus. Jesus is not done with you, as we will see in the text later. He, want, he doesn't want you to be the same person when you were saved. He's moving you, transforming you, molding you to be more like his son, which is the second part of sanctification. Now, there is an ending to your salvation that not only are, were you saved, you're being saved, you are also being, uh, will be saved fully in completion when Jesus comes back the second time. And that's the word glorification. And this is important because if you start thinking your salvation in this continuum, that you were saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved, then you, all of a sudden you will see there's a reason why you need to continue to grow, you need to continue to live righteous life by the power of the Holy Spirit with Jesus. If you only think your salvation is just a moment in time and a dot and a decision, there's no reason for any of us to continue to grow. Jesus can just take us up one day in the future, and that's it. So this is important because as we look in the text, John's going to anchor this idea, not just by our own life, but what Jesus' life here on earth and what he will do. 
the two main events that Jesus came when he came is that Jesus came over 2,000 years ago. That should be a reminder why we need to grow and walk with Jesus and also what he will do in the second coming of Jesus. So if you're taking notes, here's the first point uh, that you're following. What, what, uh, what we need to do, what John is reminding us to do if we want to remain external and we remain in obedience with Jesus. The first thing we need to do is this. We need to look forward. We need to look forward to the second appearing of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Christ. We all knew Jesus came. That's why we have the cross to remember that. But the Bible says Jesus is going to come again. Look at the, uh, the passage in John chapter 2, verse, uh, uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 again. Remain in him so that, here's a reason why you need to remain in Jesus. Verse 28, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, Jesus is righteous, you know this as well. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. When we look forward to Jesus' second coming, it motivates us in two ways. One is this. It motivates us that to give us confidence before God's future judgment. It gives us confidence. Can you next slide, please? It gives us confidence before God's future judgment. When Jesus comes again a second time, flip over a couple of pages. In the Bible, where you are at, you will go to Revelation. Revelation chapter 20 tells us that when Jesus comes back, all will be well. But before all will be well, he will judge every person, alive or dead. And John reminds us that if you are looking forward to that future judgment, and you know you have been re remaining with Jesus today, it gives you the confidence to know that you are actually belonging to Jesus. Your ability to live righteous life today should give you confidence that you belong to God. Because on our own, we can never do what Jesus calls us to do. That's why John said, if you are remaining him today, you know that you are confident. Because at the, at the end of time, when second, the second coming comes, some people will be ashamed. And some people will have confidence. And what you do today it's evidence that you can have you can have eternal you can be confident before God. So that's the first thing it motivates us that when we look forward to it, we can remain, we can live righteous life. It gives us confidence to know that when Jesus stand, when we stand before Jesus at the last day, man, I know that Jesus is working. He is bearing fruit in my life today, and is none of what I'm, what I can do on my own. It's evidence. It's fruit of what God is doing. The Holy Spirit is doing. It motivates us a second way. It motivates us a second way in this, that it, it reveals the process of us becoming who we are, the child of God, the children of God. It shows us that we are in process growing. The more we live like Jesus today, the more we realize, man, this is the process of where God meant for me to grow. That's why that picture was so important earlier I showed you, that there's a dot, there's an arrow. That God is in the process of making you to become more and more like him. If you go back to the text here, it's what it says in chapter 3, verse 1. The apostle John was ecstatic in talking about who we are in Christ. Verse 1, see what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. And we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. 
Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. See, to John, the very fact that you and I can remain in Jesus, the very fact that we can live like Jesus shows us that we belong to God. We are children of God. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of children of God, when you think of yourself. Unfortunately, for many of us, we do not share the same excitement and enthusiasm as the Apostle John. We think of being a children of God as a burden. It's almost like a curse. But you see, when John described, he said, what great love. When he realized that he was a child of God, he realized it was a sign of God's love in your life and my life. It is a gift that we get to be a child of God. It is a delight. It is a joy. That is not a burden that, oh, man, I got to be a child of God. In this past week, I was reminded of that a little bit by my own kids because uh, I was out quite a bit this, this week. It's been a busy week. I was out for late night for quite a few nights. And uh, one of my sons, uh, every day uh, before I went out at the nighttime, asked me, Daddy, are you having a meeting tonight? And then I was like, oh, Yes, I do. And then, um, so he kept asking, are you having a meeting? And I knew what he's really asking. He doesn't want to care about my schedule. What he's really asking is, am I going to be home with him? And I just being really convicted of how, man, my son just wanted to be with me. He didn't ask to go out to get yogurt land. He didn't ask to go out to do anything fun. He just wanted to be with me. I wonder sometimes do we really want to be with God? Or do we just say, God, just do us whatever you want to do? But you see, God said, I already saved you. You are a part of this family. And you know what? As a child of God, I'm not finished with you. Because in verse 2, here's what it says. Dear friends, we're God's children now. And what we will be as the children of God, what we will be has not yet been revealed. We're not fully where we need to be in the future. If we realize how great God's love is now, just wait till you go to heaven. There will be a greater joy, a greater delight. He says, we know when he appears, we will be like God. When we're in heaven, we'll be like God. There will be no sin. We'll experience all, all the pure, the most pure of joy, the most pure of love. We will be like him because we will see him as he is, which means the other way is you are not what you will be in the future. And God is at work in you. And here's, the fi- here's, here's what John said. If you, if you have that hope, if you're looking forward to that, here's what you need to do. In verse 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. You need to start getting ready. God is interested for you to be ready now so that you'll be ready in the future to experience that pure joy, pure love from God. For a long time, I, I look at verse 3, I'll, I have this question in mind. I said, God, I knew that you're going to make me pure one day when I'm in heaven. I will be glorified. I have no sin. I will, none of that. But can't I just have a little fun here on earth? And when I die, I know instantly I entered into heaven, you will transform me. I'll be clean. I'll be pure. I'll be perfect. Can't I just wait till then to do it? 
And I wonder how many of you guys ask that question. Like, God, just give me a couple of years here, you know, 10, 20, 30 years here. I'll do my thing. And then when, you, when I see you again, you just instantly, you can just change me. As I wrestle with that question, it gets back to what, what, what we really believe about the gospel. One thing, one conclusion I come away with is this. If I didn't want to be like Jesus now, I probably don't want to be like Jesus in the future. If Jesus is a burden for me now, how would that ever change when I have even more Jesus in the future? I know many of us have been at church for a long period of time. You have heard the gospel. But I wonder how many of us actually believe in the right gospel. I'm going through a baptism class with some of you guys here. And I've been wrestling with this thought about the gospel a lot is... Do we receive the gospel to be more like Jesus or do we receive the gospel so that Jesus would be more like me? And when I receive the gospel, I raise my hand and pray. Do I want Jesus to come along my life, make my life better? Or am I really surrendering? It's like, Jesus, I know my life is crap. But I, want, I need you. I want you, your life, not my life. See, when I ask that question, Jesus, can you just give me a break? So I can receive you, but later on and come back to you. I think what all those times when I was asking that question, I was actually believing in the wrong gospel. I was believing in the gospel of myself. Kind of Kevin talked about earlier in their small group. I wanted to be boss of my life. So I'm saying, God, let me be the boss of my life for a while. And I'll let you in here and there. But in the future, when, is, when, when I have no choice, but you have to be all in and fine, I'll let you be the boss of my life. That is not a real gospel. If any one of us believe in that gospel, let me warn you and tell you, that is not the real gospel. That is not the gospel of this word. Jesus doesn't want a part of your life. Jesus wants all of your life. Because he knows, and as John described, being a child of God is going to be the greatest thing that you ever receive. And while we're honored, we're wrestling against that. We're rubbing against that truth. Because last week we talked about the things of the world. It's shiny. It moves. It satisfies us for a period of time. But God said, I have something so much greater than, than all those things that you're looking for. That's why in verse 3 he says, start living, start purifying yourself, start enjoying me more, start living like me more, start start embracing me more. Because if you don't embrace me now, you will never embrace me when I'm in full. And he is the process of working through that. And so for those of us who are struggling to, to remain in Jesus, don't be discouraged. But remain, continue, persevere with you. That's why we need to understand that we're not just saved once and then God will pick us up again later. There is a process God is working in you. You're struggling great. You know how diamonds are formed? Under extreme heat and pressure. A diamond doesn't come. You know when you break a pencil, that's the same thing material as a diamond. But doesn't cost as much as a diamond, doesn't it? See, that only comes through growing. That only comes through pressure. That only comes through suffering. And Jesus said, remain in me during this time. I'm going to purify you. I'm going to, I'm going to make you more and more like me. And so one day when you actually enter into my kingdom in, the, in, in heaven, you'll be just ready to experience all that joy that I have for you. That's why we need to look forward. Just like the, the biggest losers in, the, in, that, in that show. People are looking forward to that dream life that they're looking forward to, to enjoy. That become a motivation for them to work hard. That's what makes me, brings meaning and significance. Running on a treadmill, eating those nasty food. 
drinking that green machine drink that have celery and cilantro and whatever bitter melon that they have and drink it every single day because they saw a better future. If you don't believe there's a better future for your life as Christians, read through Revelation for, for yourself this week. That's what God is, is, is t- reminding us. Here's, so that's the first thing, look forward. Here's what John continues to say. Don't only look forward, but look backward. Look back to where you were. Look back of the life that Jesus had brought you out. Look back into the, 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 the bottomless pit that you once were, and now you get to be in, lifted out from that place. Don't forget how miserable life was without Jesus. Look backward. For the rest of this, in verse 4 through 9, uh, 4 through 10, the Apostle John started laying out this logical reason why it makes absolutely no sense for a Christian to keep on sinning, to make it a habit to sin, to live in a lifestyle of sin. The translation in uh, CSB doesn't really show it as well, but for every word that you see on there that is in present tense, what John really meant is not just a one-time thing. We talk about holy perfection versus holy progression. That John is not saying that if you sin one time, you're making a habit of sin. He's pointing out to people that there are people among them that are practicing, making a lifestyle of sinning the same thing over and over again, and they're not repentant of it at all. They're unashamed about what they're going through, what they're doing. And John is addressing that and say, look back. If you are not ashamed, if you are not, if you continue to practice, it makes no sense that you call yourself as a Christian. Here in verse 4, here's what it says. Everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. A Christian, you see, if you're a genuine Christian, you understand the seriousness of sin. If you want to remain in Jesus, if you want to continue to walk and live righteous life according to God's command, you as a Christian understand what ser- how serious sin is. Verse 4 tells us sin is not just some excuse. Sin is not just an accident. Sin is not just an error. Sin is not a tragedy. Sin is not a misdeed, a faux pas. It's not someone else's fault. Sin is lawlessness. Sin, that means sin is you broke the law. And greater than that, you broke the law against the most holy God. See, I can sin against the wall and just punch the wall. The wall won't get mad. There won't be any justice. But if I kick a dog, there will be instant justice. That dog will want to bite me back. Now imagine if we sin, but we're sinning against the most high, the most powerful God there is. He is deserving of that justice. And as a Christian, we understand that. Therefore, if we understand it, why would we go back to do that? Not only do we understand the seriousness of it, it, we understand the origin of sin as well. We understand the origin of sin because in verse verse 8, it tells us this, that the one who commits sin is of the devil. Talk about harshness. John did not mince any word. He said, the one who is in the practice of sin, in the lifestyle of sin, is of the devil. Why? Because the devil says the devil has sinned from the beginning. See, it's not just a, a misstep, 
When we make a habit of sin, we are serving the devil, Satan. And John wanted us to understand. If we're believers, we knew that. That's why we we accept Jesus Christ in the first place. Because we knew we no longer want to serve the devil. I want to serve God. He is the source of our sins. As a Christian, we understand that we're not, we're not going to go back to that life being used by Satan, being lied to by Satan, being, being used by Satan to advance his work. That's what, a, that's what a Christian would understand. Here's the third thing. Not only do we know seriousness of sin, the origin of sin, here's the biggest thing. A Christian understands the cure for our sin. Here's verse 5. You know that Jesus was revealed so that he might take away sins. And there's no sin in him. You jump down verse 8, basically saying the exact same thing. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose. What's the purpose why Jesus had to come the first time? It's to destroy the devil's work. That's why he had to die on the cross. Because sins comes with a penalty. And that penalty is called death. And Jesus had to come because none of us here, myself included, is sinless. Someone need to fulfill and satisfy that wrath of God. And Jesus, I will do it for people who have sinned. I will do it for people who are not deserving of it. And a Christian understand that it cost Jesus' life. For, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3.18, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous, for the unrighteous. So now here's the logic that John wanted to get us. If a Christian understand all of that, that sin is bad, that their life was miserable with sin and that Jesus died for their sins, then why on earth would a Christian go back to that miserable place in the first place? Why would that person, if you really understand and believe, is convicted how sin is devastating for your life and my life, why would we go back and run back to that hole? Let me share, uh, help you understand it a little bit differently. I won't name the name of this restaurant because I still eat there. And I know whatever restaurant I share here, it might influence you. So um, there is this restaurant that I don't go there yet. Not this one. Uh, there is this restaurant that I've been to many, many times. And, and normally their food is great. But for whatever reason, there is this one dish. Corn sauce with fried fish. I don't know what it is. Every time I order that dish, I come home with a stomachache. I've tried it once, maybe an accident, twice, maybe someone just didn't wash their hands. Third time, I've learned my lesson. Don't ever order that dish at that restaurant. Because I've tried all the other dishes for whatever reason, they're fine. But whenever I go to that restaurant, I'll order that exact same dish. I always come home, have food poisoning. Now, I'm not talking about like a mild case of food poisoning. Those of you who struggle with poison, like a serious case of food poisoning, you know what I mean. Like things are coming out all parts of your body. And you're spending all night long in the restroom. And so guess what? If I were, if, if I were go back to that restaurant again, do you think it's a good idea? Do you think if any sane person, after getting food poisoning for three times in a row, ordered that same dish, would I go back and order the same exact thing? No. It makes no sense whatsoever. To do that. And that's what John is saying. It makes no sense whatsoever for us not to go back and to get into this lifestyle, this habit, this practice of sin against God. Because we've, 
We have diarrhea. We have thrown up because of sin. Then why go back? And make those now. Because we're going to be careful here that John is not saying you will never sin. But don't make a practice of it. Because when you do make a practice, perhaps you never really fully understand the series of sin. Or you never understood what, what really caused, need to cure you from those sins. Or who that sin is originated from. Okay, here's the next picture. I end on this little story right here. Growing up, I, uh, since we talk about food, the negative part of dirty food, uh, growing up, my family was not crazy well off, so we were growing up in Hong Kong, and we don't eat a lot of beef, so whenever we eat beef, it's like, nice, uh, but they're, it's not like crazy expensive beef, you know, so uh, if you live in Asia, you know, like, beef, not, uh, not necessarily is like the, not, not on a day-to-day basis, you eat a lot of beef, you eat a lot of chicken, a lot of pork, uh, so we get these, beef, we'll eat beef and it will be fine. So I, all throughout my childhood, I grew up eating beef, just think of beef, but no, not really a lot of taste to it. Until one day, um, my family tried this special type of beef. They're called Wagyu beef. Now, you know what Wagyu beef, if you ever had it before, you know what, what, what's so special about them. So there's a picture of it because I couldn't afford to bring a legit one here to eat. Um, the reason why it's so special is because it's, uh, these beef, uh, these cow are from Japan. And they're specially, carefully raised. And they're so expensive is because when you look at this beef, there aren't a whole lot of red on there. There's a whole lot of what color? Well, you know what the white part is? The fat, but they're not just like bad fat. Like these beef are so good that you don't really need a whole lot of seed. Just sprinkle a little salt, put it on a se- nice hot sear uh, flat iron grill or a cast iron grill, just less than a minute. And then you will see it, it will be, and then you put it in your mouth, it will taste like butter melting in your mouth. Like expensive, like the A5 Wagyu beef, it will cost you a couple hundred for like four ounces. Like barely in, like enough to feed my kids for a snack. I share this with you is because of this. Once you have this, if I were to hand you over a plate, of some regular old beef and the Wagyu beef. If you had Wagyu beef before, you remember how good it tastes. It will be a no-brainer for you. You will choose that every single time. You're not going to go pick up that 99 cents per pound beef, beef that you don't know where it came from. Especially when it's ground and a little brown on it. You are choosing this Wagyu beef every single time. Now, here's the point. Here's the point for those of our believers is that you actually have a choice to remain in Jesus. You actually have a choice to remain in Jesus. That's why John said in verse chapter 3, verse 7, Children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as God is righteous. You, don't be deceived. Many times as believers, we think we have no choice but to sin. But John said, no, 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 no. Don't, get, don't, don't, don't trick yourself. Don't be tricked. You have a choice. You don't have to choose that 99 cents ground beef that is brown and, yuck and, and smelly. You can get that piece of A5 Wagyu beef in your mouth right now anytime you want. Which is why in verse 9, John ended saying, everyone who has been born. Why do we have a choice? Verse 9 says this, everyone who has been born of God does not sin. Why do we not sin? Why can we have a choice of not making a practice of sin? Because 
God's seed remains in him. He is not able to sin, meaning he's not able to practice, have a practice or habit of sin because he has been born of God. You have been born of God. God's seed is in you. God, the spirit of God is in you that give you the choice to choose not to sin. So do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. You do not have to settle for that place where you once were. The moment you came to know Jesus, you already said no for that place. Don't go back there. Choose to do what is right before God. Because you are able to do it and you will want to do it because in the future, that's what you are made to do. That is the future, the bright future that God has for you to be pure and holy just like God. And this is what John is getting at. For some of us today, maybe we're struggling in our walk. We're wondering, boy, I cannot remain in Jesus. And I'm struggling. I don't even know if I believe anymore. But if inside of you there is a shred of faith and trust that God, I don't want to live that life anymore. I believe the spirit of God is in you. This might be that tough time that God is using to train you, to purify you. I want you to know you have the choice not to remain in that life. God doesn't want you to remain in that life. I want to encourage you to look back. But not only look back, but look forward of the life that God has intended for you. I don't really have an application today um, because I wanted to spend some time at the Lord's table to look back and look forward. Can you turn off the light, please? I want to read a passage for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 23 to 26. Here's Paul talking about why we do communion, why we observe the Last Supper. And hear what he says. For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he gave thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There are two things I want you to remember. The reason why we observe this is because it's supposed to bring us back. When Jesus died. It's supposed to bring you and I back. To remember why Jesus died in the first place. That's the looking back part. We need to remember. Don't be so casual and thinking. Oh it's just just dying. It's just a little sin that just paid. No it's not. It matters to God so much that sin was against him. He's willing to send his son to die. That's what communion is about, is looking back. But also, it says not looking back only, but looking forward that he will come again. He said, eat this bread, drink this cup, proclaiming this death that we're looking back until what? He comes. See, if you are living in despair today as a believer, I want to encourage you as you take this. Jesus is going to come again. There's hope. And he wants us to proclaim this time and time again. And look to that future and know that everything is going to be all right. 
while we're struggling through this life, while we're, we're facing temptations and struggles in this world, there will be a day. There will be no tear. There will be a day there will be no pain. There will be a day when all is well because we have trusted in Jesus Christ. So as I read that verse, I want to remind us again that the bread represents the body of Christ. That on the cross, he died on the cross. He didn't fake death. He didn't pretend to die. He literally died and was raised three days later so that our sin can't be paid for. Also, the cup represents, the Jews represent the blood of Jesus. This is not the literal blood of Jesus. It doesn't change the blood of Jesus. But it reminds us that unless there's shedding of blood, there will be no forgiveness of sin. It takes a life to pay for our life. Which was why in the Old Testament, every year they have to kill a perfectly uh, healthy animal. So that there will be a, 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 a lamb that is, that is clean, a lamb that will die, that the blood will watch over your sin and my sin. But today we don't do that because Jesus has already paid the ultimate price. So I want to encourage those of us who have uh, put their faith in Jesus, who have been baptized, to come on up and take a piece of the bread and take a cup and return it and take, a t- take some time to reflect and look back and look forward. I don't know how you're doing in your life right now. But one thing I know is this from today's passage. Jesus wants you to remain in him. Jesus wants you to live like the worthy of him. Jesus wants you to live a righteous life to exemplify him. But we can only do that when we look back and look forward. So I want to encourage you, if you've been baptized, come on up. Grab a piece of bread and a cup. Return to your seat. And after everyone has uh, taken the element, I'll pray for us and we'll take it together. And for those of us who are not a believer, you might think this has nothing to do with you. I hope that this is a picture for you to remember. I have one question I want to ask you. How are you doing with your life today? Are you happy where you're at? Is the type of life you're living now, is it what you really think life is about? Are you happy where, are you satisfied? Because the scripture tells us there's a better life for you. And that better life is not more money. That better life is not more more friends. That better life is not better grade. That better life is not being popular. But that better life is to, the, to have Jesus Christ in your life. So I want to challenge you to take a moment, even as a non-believer, You might be wondering, I don't really believe in all these stuff about Jesus. But I will challenge you, if you are not happy with where you are in life. Give Jesus a chance.